About 15 years ago, during a week-long overnight church camp in northern Ontario, I witnessed a rather startling situation. As one of the students, a younger teenage boy, started to exhibit some rather odd and extreme behaviors. Behavior that was well out of character for him as he started to writhe around on the ground out of nowhere, and shrieking. And as a number of counselors gathered around this young boy, trying to calm him down, he he kept on going, shrieking and writhing around. And a number of counselors held down his legs, and some tried to calm him down by stroking his, his hair. And he kept on going until one counselor loudly and clearly yelled, Get out of here, Satan. In the name of Jesus, I cast you out of this boy. And as he said this, the numerous counselors shot disgusted looks at him, annoyed and offended that this counselor might assume demonic power or influence could be the cause for this boy's strange and atypical behavior. Now, I want you to put yourself in that scenario. How might you have responded or what might have gone through your mind as the counselor, this lone counselor, attempted to cast a demon out of the boy? Would you have looked at him with disgust? Might you have felt a little bit embarrassed at the fact that a Christian would do such a thing? Or would you have thought, who knows, maybe the boy is possessed by a demon? What goes through your mind... When missionaries tell their stories of demonic activities that are prevalent among the peoples to whom they minister, or when they recount the tales of the witch doctors that cast spells, or they recount the tales of people being set free from physical and mental difficulties as they drive demons, as they cast demons out of these peoples in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, that stuff happens. But it happens out there. It doesn't really happen around here. I mean, we're a modern society. We're too sophisticated for these types of things, aren't we? And the question I would ask is why? Why would we be too sophisticated? Is it because we have expensive and expensive cell phones? Is it because we drive expensive cars? Is it because we have nice homes? Why wouldn't Satan be hard at work here among modern, western society in the same way he works in other places all over the world. See, we live in a day and we live in a culture that is affected and impacted by the air of secular modern society that we breathe deeply of each and every day. We rarely, if ever, think that the demonic realm impacts our lives on earth. In fact, it almost feels foolish and a little bit embarrassing to do so, right? And so the possibility of demonic influence or demonic oppression or causation of the demonic realm's causation of ailments or sicknesses is generally off the table. We don't want to talk about these things. No one wants to be the guy who looks at Bob who's suffering from something and say, hey, have we uh, considered the possibility that Bob might be possessed, oppressed, or influenced by a demon right now that we should be casting out? 
No, not many of us would want to do that because it could be a, we, we, we would feel embarrassed to do so. And this embarrassment can be credited to living life in a society that downplays and even ridicules all things spiritual, not just the demonic realm, but Jesus and angels as well, while amplifying the answers being found only in what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can smell, what we can touch. Everything needs to be explained by the natural world. And this modern view of the world and all of the scientific advancements that humanity has made by God's good common grace in many ways has been very helpful to all of us as we learn more and more about the intricacies and the complexities of this world that God has created in His wisdom and in His power. But also, on the flip side, it has also led to a dangerous and unwise denial and even ignoring of the possibility that a spiritual realm exists and that spiritual realm impacts our lives. You don't have to look hard or long to find people speaking about the possibility of a demonic realm as though it were nothing more than the superstitions and the domain of less enlightened suckers and oafs from yesteryear. A quick perusal of this subject actually led me quite easily to an article in Psychology Today where the writer asked this, quote, How can people seriously believe in the devil? The year is 2015, not 1315. There is no such thing as the devil. Christianity teaches that there is a devil and it is wrong. There is no evidence for such a thing, not a shred. It is simply something that germinated from the unscientific, irrational minds of early humans who tried their best to explain why bad things happen to good people, why good people sometimes do bad things, and why there is so much needless suffering in the world. Did you note the words that he used to describe those who believe in a spiritual realm? Irrational unscientific labels that many self-professing Christians would be horrendously embarrassed to have applied to them. And so this is the culture that we live in, the cultural, the cultural air that we breathe, and if we think that it's not affecting and impacting uh, the Christian world, we are wrong. Because even a number of quote-unquote biblical scholars, biblical scholars being those self-professed Christians who seek above all else to be respected and admired by the academic world. And so they will study the Bible and they will try to shape it to fit the socially acceptable worldviews of the day. And these self-designated biblical scholars, it's an, it's, a, it's an ironic name because they actually don't know anything about the Bible, these self-designated biblical scholars tend to deny most of Scripture. They reject the miraculous. They reject the uh, authority of Scripture. They reject the inspiration of Scripture. And yet, the writings of these biblical scholars, the thoughts, the teachings, all start to become common and accepted in the numerous Christian colleges and universities across North America. So you see it, right? Culture starts to believe something. The biblical scholars grab onto that idea, and then it begins to trickle down into the universities that are raising up the men who will take the pulpits in the churches all across the continent. One such scholar, scholar, commenting on the wilderness temptations of Jesus. Now, 
If you go back and you read the wilderness temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, I mean, it cannot be any clearer that Satan is an individual person in that narrative who seeks to derail the ministry of Christ before it begins. And this biblical scholar speaks for a number of these biblical scholars who refuse to accept the personality and the reality of Satan when he wrote this, commenting on the wilderness temptations. He said, the devil, quote, the devil is only the representative of all humanity and speaks in its name. He is only an artificial and symbolic character, the real tempter being humanity, both individual and social. In other words, to this uh, biblical scholar, Satan isn't real. There is no demonic realm. There is no spiritual realm exerting any influence on humanity. There are no evil spirits seeking our harm, seeking our downfall. Every difficulty that we face as human beings can be attached to the physical realm and explained by the physical realm. Everything, according to these scholars, can be explained with rational, worldly explanations. And so you've got the secular world, the biblical scholars, then you, it brings it into the universities, and then you start to see it in the average body of believers. It's all trickled into the church, and it's impacting vast numbers of those who profess to be Christians. In one study, the Barna Group, the Barna Group is a, a think tank that goes and surveys Christians, professing Christians about a number of different theological issues, um, and then they post their results so that we can look and see. Uh, it's good for pastors sometimes because we can kind of see where the trends are and what people are thinking and whether it's right or wrong. But they did a, uh, a study on spiritual beings and the reality of those spiritual beings. And they asked a number of self-professing Christians and in the survey on spiritual beings, 60% of self-described Christians agreed with this statement, quote, Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. 60%. 6-0% of professing believers do not believe that Satan is a real being. Only 35% disagreed, while 9% weren't sure what they thought about Satan. So you see that more than half of those who profess to be Christians in North America deny the existence of the person of Satan. It all started back here in the world, and it trickles down into the church. But when you go to God's Word, when you go to Scripture, which is what we ought to do in all things, Scripture makes it clear that the devil and his host of fallen angels do in fact exist. And the Gospel of Matthew has already revealed it to us a number of times in the historical and factually accurate events that have gone on up to this point in the life and ministry of Jesus. So we have in Matthew 4, Jesus' temptations in the wilderness where Satan comes to him and tries to tempt him. And then you go to Matthew 4, 24, where we note the crowds bringing to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Twice in Matthew chapter 4, we come face to face with the demonic realm. 
And again, in Matthew chapter 8, after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of a very serious fever, we are told this in verse 16. That evening, the crowds brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And now as we come to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, we encounter for the first time a specific case of demonic possession as we read that two demon-possessed men met him. You see that? Two demon-possessed men met him. And these won't be the last demon-possessed people that Jesus encounters in his life and ministry. When you read these texts, it's an inescapable conclusion. The devil exists, as do angels. Some of these angels are good and they serve the Lord, and some of them are evil, aligned with Satan and trying to carry out Satan's destructive will and purpose. And these evil angels, or demons do indeed make war against us. And as foolish as it might sound to the 21st century ear, demons can and do hurt and harm people as they oppress them, possess them, influence them, injure them, and torment them both physically, mentally, and, and spiritually. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Paul exhorted and encouraged the Ephesian saints in Ephesians chapter 6 to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, the words of the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesians were penned almost 2,000 years ago, and they are just as important today as when he wrote them. It's not as though Satan only came on the scene during the, the earthly ministry of Jesus to harass and attack him during that time, and then he kind of packed it all up and, then, and went into dormancy until the events of Revelation start to happen. Scripture is clear and Scripture is consistent in its warnings to us about the efforts of Satan to destroy us. And so the Apostle Peter warned Christians throughout the empire, the Roman Empire, saying to them, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Peter makes it clear Satan is on the prowl seeking to devour people. He's always looking to steal, always looking to kill, always looking to destroy, and is consistent and relentless in his efforts to do so. Satan, at this very moment, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2, is trapping and deceiving unbelievers and holding them captive to his will. Satan is at work right now in believers to get them to sin against their most wonderful and precious Lord. This is one of the reasons that Paul told married couples, hey, you guys need to be sleeping together. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Sleep with each other so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
And in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells, exhorted the church, don't let the sun go down in your anger against somebody else because that gives Satan an opportunity. As he wrote, do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The, Satan, the enemy and the demonic realm is always looking for these footholds and opportunities to get into your life. And along with tempting believers to sin... Satan also labors to halt the progress of and the ministry of the church in and to the world. As Paul wanted to come to the Thessalonian church, for example, to minister among them, he was hindered by Satan again and again and again, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Satan is waging war against the church, and he does everything he can to inhibit it, to stunt it, to destroy it, but he doesn't simply do that with the church's ministry. He tries to ruin your witness as well. Satan designs and schemes against you, meaning he tries to manipulate you. He tries to play mind games with God's people. Paul wrote as much in 2 Corinthians 11, saying, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, which is why we must always stay awake and remain alert. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul counseled us to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, Paul makes it clear that when you're looking for elders and you're choosing elders, they must be well thought of by outsiders so that that particular elder does not fall into disgrace or, as Paul puts it, into the snare of the devil. So these snares and these schemes that are readily evident throughout God's Word were the fodder for many Puritan works written on this subject. Some of the great works include uh, my main man, Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks wrote this in, what, I don't know, 1611 or something like that. And it's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he lists a number of biblical methods and modes that the enemy uses to entrap God's people and then gives us a number of remedies to fight against those, to be alert to those, to be awake to them. Some of the manipulations and strategies of the enemy in this book, according to Thomas Brooks, are these. Satan will present the bait of sin as pleasurable, but hide the hook that hooks you and hauls you into your death. Satan will paint sin with the colors of virtue, manipulating us into seeing sin and wickedness as a good and acceptable thing. I mean, how often do you see that in churches all over North America right now? us calling things holy that the Lord calls abominable. He says uh, Satan attempts to get us to lessen the evil of sin. He labors to have us create extenuating circumstances for why our own sin is acceptable while everyone else who does the same thing is disobedient. Satan will amplify the crosses and the losses and the sorrows and the sufferings that daily attend those who strive for and walk in the ways of holiness and leads you to the place where you might even say to yourself, listen, this, I can't, we, we don't need to be so serious all the time about this. 
Satan will cause us to compare ourselves to others whose outward ways are supposedly worse than our own so that we can rest comfortable in our state before the Lord. You know, Lord, I'm not like that person or like that person. I'm a lot better than them. So we must be good, right? Satan attempts us to rest on the foundation of our deeds rather than the grace of God through faith in Christ. And Satan continually labors to suggest that those who are actually saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, possess only a counterfeit faith. There's just a few that he lists in here. It's a wonderful book. And he wrote this book because, as he wrote, as, and I quote, Satan has snares for the wise and snares for the simple, snares for the hypocrite and snares for the upright. Snares for the generous souls and snares for the timorous souls. Timorous means nervous and lacking in confidence. He has snares for the rich and snares for the poor. Snares for the aged and snares for the youth. Happy are those that are not taken and held in the snares that he has laid. Another Puritan work that is worthy of mention is William Spurstow's The Wiles of Satan. He wrote this book, and I quote, because Satan is full of devices, meaning strategies and schemes, and he studies arts of circumvention by which he unweariedly seeks the irrevocable ruin of the souls of men. And so he lists a number of strategies and wiles that the enemy uses and some uh, biblical advice on how to overcome those. Both works dive deeply into the tactics of the enemy, his plans and his strategies, and try to help us to rebuff those and resist them because Satan labors with all his might to destroy us. Satan, if you remember, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, went to Jesus, and Peter told, or Jesus told Peter that Satan demanded to have him that very night, that he might sift him like wheat. You remember that? Luke chapter 22. And sifting in this context is the vigorous and rough shaking that is required to separate wheat from chaff. Satan asked the Lord Jesus to roughly rattle and shake Peter's faith, to make Peter fall away from Christ like the chaff falls away from the kernel. And he wants to do the same thing for you and I. And I want, as we read Scripture to note the devastation that Satan in the demonic realm can wreak upon humanity. Now, I want to be clear, because everything we're going to talk about in the next section here, I want you to know that I am not saying that every single occurrence of these things is the result of demonic influence, oppression, or possession. But I do think we have to, and we must start to consider the fact that some of it is. We have almost completely moved in the direction of naturalistic responses and psychological answers for everything as though Satan and the demonic realm were dormant. But Satan is not dormant, neither is the demonic. And there are times when the things that we are going to mention here do, in fact, come as a result of Satan's influence in our lives. And so I want you to think about and consider in your own life whether these things in your own life are the product of the demonic or the product of your own sinful corruption, whether they need to be answered in spiritual measure or whether they can be answered in natural measure. 
So in our text this morning, we note that the demons attacked these men in a number of ways. So look again at Matthew 8, 28. In Matthew 8, 28, we read, And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now Mark recounts this same event in his gospel, and he said this about the, the, one, of the, one of the two men. He lived among the tombs, this is Mark chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So you see, one of the results of demonic possession, this is specific to possession, seems to be heightened strength. And we see this supernatural strength of the demon possessed on display in other portions of Scripture as well. In Acts chapter 19, we read about uh, the high priest Sceva who had seven sons. And they saw and wanted to imitate the extraordinary miracles that God was doing through the Apostle Paul. And so these seven sons of the high priest approached a demon-possessed man, and in Acts chapter 19, 13, they said this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Or in other words, I cast you out of this man. Demons. And the the demon-possessed man, the demon in the man, the evil spirit in the man, responded this way in Acts chapter 19, verse 15 and 16. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, that's the seven sons, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And I remember working in a youth outreach organization and talking with uh, some of the other Uh, spiritual leaders in that organization and them telling me the stories of their life working with teenagers in northern Ontario. One particular story I remember quite vividly comes as he mentioned teens coming into this outreach organization, uh, a gospel-centered outreach organization, and the kid came in frothing at the mouth, screaming and shrieking. And it took almost 20 people to hold this kid down and he was able to grab one of the pool tables and just throw it. Now, you ever tried to lift a pool table before? They're not easy to lift. So demonic possession seems to be accompanied by heightened strength. So if uh, you're ever in the position where you are meeting with someone who has abnormal strength, with shrieking and convulsing and those types of things, keep it in mind. We also note in Mark's recounting of this historical event in the ministry of Jesus that demons influencing, possessing, or oppressing people cause people to engage in acts of self-harm. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now you need to know 
This is common, far more common than any of you might think. Satan is the one who wants you, if you are doing so, he is the one who wants you to harm yourself. He is the one who wants you to cut yourself. He is the one who wants you to gash yourself. And if this is you, do not listen to Satan. Do not let him influence you in this direction. Instead, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Know this, Satan wants you dead. But contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, our precious, wonderful, highly exalted Lord, came that you might have life and life to the full. So heightened strength, self-harm, and not only that, But again, we note the mental repercussions and the mental health issues that arise uh, as a result of the demonic in this man's life. Now again, I'm not saying that every mental illness is a result of the demonic in your life, but we must take into consideration that some is. See, this this possessed man, he lived among the tombs and he was shrieking and harming himself. But after Jesus cast the demon out, after the demon was driven away, Mark tells us in chapter 5, verse 15, that when the crowds came to see the great miracle, here is what they saw. They saw the formerly demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The implication being that when the legion of demons possessed him, he was out of his right mind. Heightened strength, acts of self-harm, mental instabilities, and along with all of those things, the demonic can also bring about physical ailments in your life. We see this, for example, in the life of Job. In Job chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. We also see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, to whom a thorn was given in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 tells us it was a messenger from Satan to harass him. And we see throughout the Gospels that the, those who were oppressed by demons were unable to speak as a result of that oppression. And when Jesus cast out the demon, they were able to speak again in Matthew chapter 9. And we also see a boy possessed by demons who because of that demon, he suffers terribly, endures seizures, foams at the mouth according to Luke, and throws himself into the fire seeking to end his life, and throws himself into the water seeking to end his life. And after Jesus rebuked the demon in this young boy, he is healed of all of these things. And we read about that in Matthew chapter 17. And in Luke chapter 13, we, t- we read of a woman who had been afflicted by, for 18 years with a disabling spirit so that she was bent over and couldn't straighten herself up. And then Jesus healed her, and when he drove that spirit out, she was able to stand up perfectly straight. And again, just to be crystal clear, while each and every instance of disability, seizures, mutinous, Mental difficulty and physical ailments are not the result of demonic influence. Scripture makes it clear that some are. And we must take this seriously. But not only does Satan do all of these kind of physical things, but Satan and the demonic realm prowl around seeking to devour people spiritually as well. 
by the promotion of false doctrines, by the promotion of ear-tickling the people. As Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Satan and the demonic realm labor among God's people. There are tares lit growing up with the wheat. The demonic realm labors to promote division, labors to promote quarreling, and in so many ways labors to, to tempt us to sin. So you see from this overview, hopefully you see from this overview of Scripture that there are a number of things that the demonic realm is capable of doing. Physical torment, disease, emotional turmoil, mental distress, chaos, seizures, self-harm, self-mutilation, and this is what the demonic realm desires for you. This is what they hope for in your life, to steal to kill, and to destroy. And for that reason, it is quite serious that we keep away. It is exceedingly important that we resist and we remain alert, that we give no opportunity to the devil, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.27. Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light in all of this, and his servants disguise himself as agents of righteousness or servants of righteousness. Paul said as much in 2 Corinthians 11. He said even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So the question then after we look at all of this is how do we avoid giving the devil a foothold? How do we avoid giving opportunity to the devil? How does one open themselves up for the devastation that this demon-possessed man in Matthew 8 endured? Well, the text doesn't tell us how these two men came to be possessed by the demons. There are a number of things Scripture tells us not to take part in that might give the devil the foothold that he is looking for. And while some of these might sound trivial to you, and one of them might get me in a little trouble because people really cling to this particular thing, do not underestimate their seriousness to the Lord. And the Lord gives us a pretty clear overview uh, in his words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The Lord told them this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them, the nations, out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So there are a few things listed in this text 
that we need to take seriously that I think sometimes don't get taken as seriously as they ought to. Some of them we do take seriously, but some of them we don't. One of the footholds, uh, there's about five or six, one of them here, uh, we read that the demonic is given a foothold when people attempt to determine the will of God by divination. You see that word? That word was used in there a couple of times, right? Divination. Divination is the attempt to determine uh, fortunes and to determine the will of the gods or God by means of crystals or stones or tarot cards or crystal balls or astrological signs. You know, sometimes I go into the supermarket and I see those little rolled up Astro, astrological papers. You ever see those things? They sell them in the little boxes there as though they're really just little innocent things. They're not innocent. This is divination. It's a serious thing. And we actually read of a slave girl in Acts chapter 16 who was possessed by a spirit of divination. If there is a spirit of divination, what does that tell us about divination? And this girl brought her owners much profit from her fortune-telling revealing to us that this practice actually does work for some people. But the source of it is a demonic source. If you remember in the narrative, she followed Paul and Silas around for days, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing it and doing it and doing it to the point where Paul got annoyed with her. And finally, he turned to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Did you see the source of her divining power? The demonic realm. So stay away from crystals and stones and tarot cards and chicken bones and crystal balls and astrological signs. Just stay away from it all. This is serious stuff. If you want to determine the will of God, go to his word. The demonic is also given a foothold according to Deuteronomy 18, when people practice something called necromancy. Now that seems like a terrifying word, a big word, but it simply means attempting to communicate with the dead. The living are unable to communicate with the dead. You cannot speak to your departed family members or your ancestors if they have passed on. Some try to communicate with the dead through things like Ouija boards and mediums and psychics, but all who claim to be able to communicate with the dead are liars and or deceived. And be very, very careful because the biggest professing Christian block in the world makes an entire doctrine about praying to the dead. This is serious business. Those who consult or labor to consult or communicate with the dead, don't in fact consult with the people they think they're consulting with, but they consult with the demonic realm. The third thing in this text is that the demonic is given a foothold when people practice magic. Now, I'm not talking about David Copperfield making the... the what is it? What, what's that woman that there in the States? Statue of Liberty disappear, or your average card trick but the practice of using formulas and incantations and spells. These are demonic in nature. But here's the thing, right? There is some level of power in these practices. 
But the source is demonic. If you recall, when Moses went to Pharaoh and did some signs to Pharaoh, guess who was able to duplicate a number of those signs? The Pharaoh's magicians. But the source, again, is demonic, and a foothold is given to the demonic. In the text here, I noticed uh, between services, you also see this word sorcerer. In the New Testament, the Greek word for sorcerer or sorcery is pharmakia. Does that word sound familiar in English? Pharmaceutical, pharmacy. The idea being that there are a number, there are a lot of illicit drugs and things like that that were created for the, the shifting of your mental state to see illusions and things like that. That's a demonic practice as well. Illicit drug use can be a demonic practice. Fifthly, the demonic is given a foothold when people practice witchcraft. And be aware of this because there are a growing number of people who call themselves witches. There are a growing number of people who think it's okay to call themselves white witches or good witches. There are a number uh, of people who, in, in our day, who are going and trying to, to do witchy type stuff. I don't even know about what witches do because I have no care to ever learn about what they're doing. But witchcraft is fairly common among people groups all over the world. And if you listen to the stories of the missionaries that minister to peoples all over the world, they will tell you how real it is. And in our our culture, there are many who call themselves witches, like I said, but one of the most devastating and agitating realities that I see now is that there are a number of self-professed Christians who call themselves Christian witches. That's not a thing! It's an abomination to the Lord and those who partake of such things serve the demonic. And I I don't want to move off of this yet because I want us to know that in these these types are actively against faithful, God-fearing, gospel-preaching churches. In previous churches that I've ministered in, it was quite clear that the witches in town would gather themselves to pray and invoke curses against our church. And we'd be fools to think that people aren't doing that to us here and now, trying to invoke such things here. And we must be on guard and alert, praying against such things. The demonic realm is real, and it wants to hinder our ministry here. And I remember a friend of mine, a good Christian guy, who was trying to minister to the people on his, in his block. It was one of uh, uh, a number of houses kind of connected together. And he would go and he'd talk about Jesus with a bunch of people. But the woman, like right next to him, she would always poke her door open, just leave her screen door open just this much, and she'd put her hand up and she'd start invoking curses on him in some other language. And he got so mad, but he never did anything until his wife, she just had enough one day, and she went over there and told her to stop in a much more forceful way. But you, if you love Jesus and you're making an, a difference in this world, know this. These types of groups will rise up against you. But as we'll learn, it doesn't make any difference because we got Christ. But we'll get to that. <laughs> the last, participation in the rites Practices and rituals of false religion. 
provide opportunities for the devil. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul wrote that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, I've heard many times professing believers speak of participation in interfaith services, worship services, or call for us to respect the part the practice of rituals in other religions or to show respect or even sometimes to go and participate as a witness and those types of things. But these are simple footholds of the enemy. Even more, their participation in the demonic. Did you notice that Paul connected paganism specifically a one-to-one correlation with the demonic? It shocks me sometimes how flippant we can be about such things. It shocks me sometimes to see a number of professing Christians defending their continued participation in things like yoga. Yoga. Now you know what that is, right? I've heard so many argue in defense of this Hindu meditation practice whereby you pose your bodies in such ways so as to open it up to their gods. And when I hear When you hear that word, think demons. Posing your bodies in such ways so that you meet with the Hindu gods. And all along being told to empty your mind. Now listen, all throughout scripture, when we remove something, we are told to fill it with godly things, right? If we eliminate a sin from our life, you fill it with righteousness and obedience. This idea of emptying your mind And leaving it clear just provides the most obvious opportunity for the devil to bring him and seven of his friends with him. You might think it's all innocent, but I guarantee you it is not. All of this is opposed to God. And if you are participating in such things, you are giving foothold to the devil and opportunity to the demonic. But I want to just stop here for a second and encourage you. For those of us who love the Lord Jesus, I want you to know this. The true believer, one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, one who, as Jesus said, um, who, as Jesus said, dwells in us, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, if that is you, you cannot be possessed by the demonic. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in the same house as the demonic, and there are no mentions in Scripture anywhere of a true follower of Christ, a true follower of God being possessed by the demonic anywhere. It does not happen. However, that being said, there are instances of believers being influenced, tempted, and oppressed from the outside by the demonic. And so we must listen to God's word. As James said, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Remain alert, remain sober-minded, recognize that the devil prowls around like a a lion seeking someone to devour, but as you remain alert and as you stay awake, you do so, if you truly believe in Christ, you do so in full assurance of this fact given to us by the Apostle John, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this is made crystal clear in Matthew 8. All right, so we've come to the end of the introduction. 
Now the sermon can begin. (laughs) We don't know how these men came to be demonically possessed, but we know that they were fierce, they were strong, they were unstable, and they struck fear into the townsfolk. But did you notice at the sight of Christ, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What a question. There's lots to learn in that statement. You see, while the demonic realm does possess real power to wreak havoc on earth, real power to harm, tempt, and influence people, Jesus possesses all authority and all power over the spiritual realms and the forces of evil. And that is the point of our text this morning. Matthew has been leading us on a journey of recognition that Jesus is authoritative over everything. He was authoritative over physical sickness when he healed the paralytic and, uh, he, or, or when he healed the leper. He's authoritative over creation when he calms a storm by rebuking it. And now as the disciples cross over to the other side, to the region, the Gentile region of the Gadarenes, Jesus reveals his authority to drive out, his authority to command the demonic powers with one single word, go. You see, the demons recognized Christ's authority, and as Jesus approached the tombs, the demon-possessed men cried out, it says. And cried out here means they shrieked and they screamed in horror at the approach of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark tells us that they ran forward and they fell down before Jesus because while the demons might hate Jesus, they are powerless to do anything other than submit to his authority. And this because, according to verse 29, they know who Jesus is and they know what their future is. You see, first they know who Jesus is. You see what they said in verse 29? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? So you see, while the people and the disciples wondered, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him, the demons both know it and they declare it. This is the Son of God. The demons know this is God come in the flesh, the very God we are seeking to undermine, to the very God we are seeking to thwart, the very God we are seeking to keep people from turning to. But when he shows up, they are powerless in his presence and can only say, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Please leave us alone. You see, there's no fellowship between Christ and the demonic as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Remember in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? And the implied answer to that question is none. These are opposed to each other and the demons know this. And so they shriek in terror at the thought that Christ might be there to sentence them to their eternal torment. And do you notice... Who they say will torment them. Look at the text. Have you, have you come to torment us? Have you come to subject us to the unbearable pain and torture that our deeds deserve before the time set? The devils are terrified of this coming day. They tremble at the reality of their appointed day for judgment. They know their future and they wonder if Jesus has come, if he's arrived on the scene before the appointed time to judge them early. 
And do you see how they respond? They respond in fear. They respond with terror. They know their time is short, according to Revelation 12. And so they beg Jesus for what? For delay. They don't beg for mercy because there is none available to them. They simply beg for delay. The devil and his demons know that the day is coming, according to Revelation 20, when the devil who had deceived the four corners of the earth was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and there tormented day and night forever. They know that day is coming. They know the judgment of the great day will bring nothing but horror for them. They know the Lord has prepared an eternal fire for the devil and his angels and an appearance of Jesus on this day to these men sent these demons possessing the men into a tailspin of fear. Now, if you had to look at this and say, who's the one in charge here, who would you say? The ones cowering in fear or the one who comes in authority? Because I want you to contrast what we see in this text with some of the more popular conceptions of God and Satan that we hear in the world. For many who don't know what Scripture teaches, they see God and Satan as two equally powerful forces locked in combat with one another with an outcome that is still as of yet uncertain. And I've also heard from a number of people, as they jokingly say, I'd rather laugh with the sinners in hell than cry with the saints in heaven. Well, both of these things are terrible errors and would, could not be further from the truth. And let's look at them in turn. First, there is no doubt as to who is in control. It is not that God and Satan are locked in some battle and we don't know who wins. We know who wins. We know who submits to who. Jesus is in control and the devil shriek and fall before his authority. There is no contest here. And second, for those who think that they'd rather laugh with their friends in hell, did you notice the demons themselves want no part of hell? They don't want to go there. They don't want to be there. This is the place of their eternal torment. They were terrified at the idea that Jesus had come to send them there at that moment. And it will be the same for any human who ends up there. There is no laughing. There is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you desire true joy, if you desire peace and laughter and all of those wonderful blessings, then you turn to Jesus in faith because he is the creator and the giver of those good gifts. They will not exist in hell. So instead of torment, chapter 8, verse 31 says, the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Do you see it? This legion of demons cannot even afflict pigs without the permission of Jesus. These proud demons had to beg Jesus for consent to enter into these unclean pigs. Jesus, don't torment us. The time has not yet come. Instead, dispatch us into that herd of pigs over there. And Jesus, with a single word, go, gave them leave to do so. The text tells us, so they came out and went to the pigs, went into the pigs. So again, who's the one with authority in this text? With a single word, he told the demons what they were permitted to do and, made it crist- and, this, and to make it crystal clear that this was, in fact, demonic possession, Matthew tells us what happens next. 
so that we know that it wasn't just some physical or mental disorder in the person themselves. The text tells us that the demons went into the pigs. Mark tells us there was 2,000 of them. And immediately they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. You see, the lives of these two men, according to Jesus, and by, by his uh, actual deeds, he showed that the lives of these two men were more valuable than many pigs. And the demons, whose entire goal is nothing more than killing and destroying, were able to do just that to the pigs, leaving absolutely no doubt that this was the demonic at work. And after seeing all of the pigs run off the cliff, the herdsmen fled to the city and told the city folk everything that they had witnessed. And the entire city came out to meet Jesus, but rather than joyfully celebrate the liberation of these now formerly demon-possessed men, the text tells us in the very last line, they begged him to leave their region. They begged him to leave their region. Now commentators aren't sure as to what they were begging him to leave for. Some thought... They cared more about the loss of the pigs than the liberation of the men, and so they were angry with Jesus for the loss of their, their pigs. A number of commentators actually wondered about this. They wondered about what they called the unnecessary death of so many pigs. But Jesus is revealing to you what he speaks in Matthew 10.31, that one life, one human life, is of more value than many animals. And Jesus made that clear in this text. Some commentators thought that it could be the town, that the townsfolk heard of Christ but remained hostile to him because they loved their earthly gain. They loved the world and so they chose it. They chose their commerce. They chose their business over Christ. While still others say it could be that the people recognized something in Christ. Like they knew that there was a holiness here. There was a power here. There was an authority here such as never had been witnessed before. And so they pushed him away either in fear or out of a lack of desire to have such an authoritative and powerful man in their presence. Whatever the case, Jesus is authoritative over the demonic realm. And when he speaks, they must obey. And that's good news for us. Satan is real. Demons are powerful. Their goal is to align you with themselves. And they will perform signs, according to Revelation 16. They will labor to assemble the kings of the world in battle against the Lord on the great day of the Lord. But you who love the Lord Jesus, you are called to stay awake. You are called to be aware of the, the tricks and the tactics and the strategies that the enemy will use to tempt you, to entice you, and to lure you in. Always remember the authority of Christ over the demonic realm. Look to Jesus and know the word of Jesus. If you recall, when Jesus was in the, the, the wilderness and Satan was tempting him, what did he do? He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil three times. And if the book of Deuteronomy is enough to make the devil flee for Jesus then, it's enough to make the devil flee from us today. But we've got so much more, right? Get to know God's word. Remember, there is no fellowship and no agreement and no accord between the things of darkness and the things of light. So don't play around with the things of darkness. If you truly love and believe in Christ, if you are truly saved by grace through faith in Christ, 
be alert, be on guard. The enemy has been working at work testing and tempting God's people for thousands of years. And he will continue to do so until the day, until the time comes when he, along with his demons, will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to harass or deceive anyone again. There is coming a day when Christ will say, Enough! And the demonic will cease to be a part of your life any longer. Until that day, in closing... Stay close to Jesus. Stay away from things sinful. Stay away from things that might give Satan a foothold or opportunity in your life. And rejoice in your all-powerful King of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that one day, the day of God's choosing, Christ will come and fully and finally crush the head of that wicked serpent. Amen and amen. Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you that you have revealed to us the fact that there is a spiritual battle happening at this very moment. And we can sometimes attribute maybe too much to the enemy because there is also the world and the flesh conspiring against us, but we can also make the twin error of attributing too little to him to the point that we aren't aware and we aren't alert and we aren't awake. So I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit in us would convict us and give us this sense of the need to stay away from dark things, to always be reminded that there is no fellowship between light and dark. I pray that you would help us not to give Satan opportunity, not to give Satan a foothold, but to always know that he is prowling around seeking to, to devour each and every one of us. So I pray that you, by your word and by your spirit in us, would help us to stand firm and to resist him, knowing that the promise of your word is that if we do in your power, he will flee from us. So we praise you and we honor you and we rest in the glorious power and authority of Jesus Christ over the spiritual realms. And we thank you that by grace, through faith in you, we can be saved and look forward to the day when he is crushed. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.